0: If you have your Bible, you can make your way to Romans chapter 8. For those of you that, that like to keep progress or, or tabs, this is our 27th week that we're looking at Paul's letter to the church in Rome, and um, this is the 8th week of the third mini-series within that, so I don't know why I like, I'm that, maybe it's just me that, that likes seeing progress, but... Um, I'll tell you anyways, just so you can come along with me in that. Um, we, we started last week, we're going to spend six weeks on Romans chapter 8, and we talked about last week how it's, it's one of those chapters that some people consider the greatest chapter in all of Scripture, not that its weight is more, just that it encompasses everything about the Christian experience, the Christian life. And then really, if, if you ever had this idea that you're going to memorize scripture and then say, memorize a whole chapter, these, these verses right here are probably the ones you should start with. Then, then you've got a good collection going on. Um, if you, I know some of you are like already looking to see how many verses. I think it's 39 off the top of my head. But, but it's possible if you can do that. So um, it's just one of those places where we see the, the, the total aspect of the Christian experience. That, that it's kind of bookends from last week that there's now no condemnation for those in Christ. And then finishing with it, there's no separation from the love of God in Christ. And so that we're not condemned in Christ and nothing can separate us from that. And that's kind of the bookends of the Christian experience that we can walk in that truth. And so today we continue in um, verses 9 through 11. And, and what we see is the second part of a description that Paul's giving. Paul's contrasting those that are in the flesh. We looked at that last week, and then those who are in the spirit or the Christian. And today we look at Paul's description of the Christian. And so if you will, just follow along and read verses 9, 10 11, and then we'll get further into it today. So in, in Romans chapter eight, verse nine, Paul says, "You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you." Father God, I just pray that, God, as we look at your truth, God, that we would stop trying to make your truth fit us, God, that we would allow your truth to saturate and permeate every aspect of our lives. I just pray that, that your spirit would powerfully work in each of our hearts as well as our church as a whole so that the people. That we encounter and live around, we'll see that, that there is a difference, but that difference is your spirit at work in our lives. God, we just pray that we submit to you in every aspect. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so if you you look at that, it's kind of a it's kind of an interesting Three verses honestly if you if you look at this happening it 's one of those where you can get real technical and kind of what is Paul actually saying, because he kind of switched what he 's talking about in the middle, which Paul does sometimes, where he 's talking about one thing and then he uses a different word or terminology or phrase to talk about the exact same thing, and we kind of see that in these verses but But what we want to look at today is these three verses, verses nine 10, and eleven are basically a short understanding of the entire chapter of Romans 8. The, the point of Romans 8 is to give those who are in Christ assurance of their identity in Christ. That's why it starts with there's no condemnation. He's, he's spent all these chapters in Romans talking about sin and how everyone's sin, all of sin, we all fall short, the wages of sin is death. But he comes back in Romans 8 and he gives you assurance. And everything that he does in Romans, chapter 8, Paul is giving assurance, and that's exactly what we see in verses 9, 10, and 11. That This is just a little summary of the overall sum of the parts of Romans, chapter 8. And so when we look at that idea, it's, it's good to kind of go back to see what he's contrasting. It's good to understand, because if we are going to have assurance of salvation, we have to realize that there is a possibility of not having salvation. And that's what we got in in. 5 through 8, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. And then verse 8 is really the starkest, that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so we see two realities. We see two realities. We could see the converted or the non-converted person in the flesh and in the spirit. And and the reality is that if we are unconverted, non-converted, not living in the spirit but in the flesh, then it's impossible to please God. And when we look at that idea, that that is very possible, then it, it makes you step back. It makes you step back and start to consider where you stand. Another pastor, I saw that the whole point of his sermon was, are you ready to die? And I'm like, man, that's kind of crazy, but that's what he's talking about. Are, are, you, are you ready as far as you're standing with God, that, that if you die today, everything's good? Are you assured of that salvation and so it's, it, I want to spend some time just talking about salvation. How is that, how is that possible? What does that mean? What does it look like in our lives before we get into just some really just practical applications that the Spirit works in our lives so that we then can know or that the effects of the Spirit in our lives because of assurance. Because I know that every week there are people in here that worship with us that are not Christians. There, every week there are people within our body that are not in Christ, and not just actively not in, but there are people that have done the same thing their entire life that think you're in Christ, yet in reality you really haven't seen a heart change transformation that Paul talks about in Romans 8. So it's good to consider salvation and assurance that we have. And, and so when we look at this whole thing, when we look at today at these three verses, We see that there's assurance of our salvation because we can then understand that we are then justified, declared not guilty, that the penalty of our sin as sinners has been paid for by Christ through his death on the cross, but also that we have assurance of salvation because we know that then we are adopted as sons and daughters of God, that that we're not just justified, he didn't just justify us and leave us on, but he's brought us into his family. We're not just walking aimlessly outside of God's family. We've been adopted. We've been brought in because he chose us when we were unlovable. Because before the foundation of the world, God chose to save us through his son. And then ultimately, we have assurance of salvation because we can look and experience sanctification. We can see God's power at work in our lives. And so that all Begs the question then, how is one saved, right? If we have assurance of salvation and understand that, well, how are you saved? And that's what I I want, I want to look at, the fact that first we have to consider that there is a need, right? Romans 3, all have sinned. If all have sinned, then we stand as sinners. If you go back to Romans 5, we stand as sinners represented by Adam before a holy, righteous God, and therefore the wages of that sin is death, Romans 6. And so we have to realize that there's a need, a very real need of salvation. And salvation, there's there's two aspects that we cannot forget. And the first is repentance. How are we say we, we repent of our sin? It's the key to the beginning and the continuing in the Christian life is repentance. It begins with an act of repentance that's brought on by the Spirit's work. When you hear the gospel, you're aware of your sin And you repent and you turn from that, but it's also an aspect of the continuation of the Christian life. We don't repent once and then we walk the rest of the time. No, it's a continual life of repentance because it's always necessary because we're always struggling with sin. If if it was just a one-time repentance and then you never struggle with sin, then you only have to repent once, but we don't. We struggle with sin continually. Romans 7 is a perfect example of that. Paul, the one that we, i mean he writes two-thirds of the New Testament, says the things that I want to do, I cannot do. It's a continual repentance that we can't forget about this aspect of our salvation, that repentance is only possible by an awareness of sin that's acted on by the Spirit of God in our lives. That you can't find that. It's vital And if you've ever heard anyone talk about salvation and they don't mention repentance, then they're not talking about biblical understanding of salvation. I've got some verses here for you. Um, I didn't put them in the notes because I know some of you are going to go ahead and so now you have to pay attention. But, But this idea because you are, you're already trying to fill them out. But we have to go back to this idea that repentance is vital and it's all through scripture. When salvation is talked about, repentance is always within the context. It's Jesus' first words in Mark, right? Mark 1:15, repent and believe for the kingdom of God's at hand, right? And, and think about that, repent and believe in the gospel that, that no one there knew what the gospel was because he hadn't died yet, right? But his first thing is repent and believe. In Luke 13, he says that unless you repent, you too will perish. So if you don't repent of your sin, acknowledge, turn, which is activated, allowed, or we're capable of doing by the power of the Spirit, then we too will perish. In Acts, as we get the church growing, Jesus sends them out, he leaves, the Spirit comes, and the church just goes crazy with growth all over. We see repentance. 2.38. Acts 2.38 says, repent and be baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 3.19, it says, repent and turn. 11.18 11.18 says, God has granted repentance. That's an interesting one because that's Luke talking about Peter's experience with Cornelius and saying that the Gentiles had the Holy Spirit. And he says, so now look, God has granted repentance to the Gentiles. So salvation is possible. Why? Because repentance had been granted because the Spirit was evident in their lives. But it had to be repented. It, I, just, I love the way he says that, that repentance has been granted. Because we can't repent apart from the Spirit in our lives. Acts 26 20. You should repent and turn to God. should repent and turn to God. And then Paul again in 2 Corinthians 7. It says the repentance that leads to salvation. All through this. It's all understanding that we need to repent and turn. And so many times the church does two things incorrect When this. One is they don't talk about sin at all. And if you never talk about the reality of sin. Then what are you going to repent of? If you, if you never talk about the reality of sin, then what are you going to repent of? You can't, you can't repent if you're not a sinner. And so we have to talk about that reality. And that's why I think Paul spends so much in Romans teaching these Roman Christians and us as well that sin is a present reality in the life, but it doesn't define us anymore in Christ because there's no condemnation. So we can talk about sin. We can acknowledge that we're sinners because we can turn from it. But the other side that the the church typically does, if it doesn't talk about sin at all, it focuses too much on sin and then you never feel like you can get out of it. It comes into this legalistic idea that if you're not doing everything perfect, then somehow you're not right with God. That how could you live that way? We can't not talk about sin, but we can't only focus on sin because sin doesn't define us anymore. And it doesn't define us anymore because God sent his son while we were unlovable. So we can repent and turn to God. We can repent and believe. We can repent and be baptized because we see the reality of our sin and are aware that we can do nothing about it, yet thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we have to understand that repentance is not about behavior modification. It's not about changing your behavior. Greg Gilbert wrote a book called "What Is the Gospel." It's a little thin book. If you want to look it up, it's a great read, um, and it's like a hundred pages, so pretty much anyone can get through it. Um, so, um, because I know some, sometimes I say books and they're like four hundred pages, and I know the reality of you trying to read it. it's not going to happen. This is one you should go get. Right? What is the gospel? Greg Gilbert. He says in there that genuine repentance is more fundamentally a matter of the heart's attitude towards sin than a mere change in behavior. I'm like, What an amazing realization that repentance is more concerned with your heart's attitude towards your sin than just changing your behavior. Because if we take that a step further, you're not going to change your behavior if your attitude towards your sin doesn't change. You might think it does, but then, you're, oh, I can't believe I did that again. And Then what do you find? You're good for a little while and then you fall back into it because your heart really wasn't against your sin, you were just sad that you got caught in it a lot of times. That's what I see the reality at school when I'm teaching the kids that get in trouble, they're sorry because they got caught. Right? If they would have got caught, nothing was wrong. Nothing's wrong, right? But when you get caught, all of a sudden, oh I'm sorry. Well you're not sorry because you're gonna do it again. you're not sorry the action, you're sorry that you got caught. And the same thing is with our sin that we have to change our heart's attitude towards our sin. And that's why we've asked the question several times recently, do you hate your sin? Do you hate the present reality of just sin in your life? Because that's the chief difference between a Christian and a non-Christian, or a converted and an unconverted person. Is a hatred towards sin? I've got a, a quote there from William Arnot. He was a Scottish preacher in the 1800s. He said, "The difference between an unconverted and a converted man is not that one has sin and the other has none, but that one takes part in his cherished sin against a dreaded God, and the other takes part with a reconciled God against his hated sin." Like, what an amazing realization! that that's the reality that everyone lives in. We're either taking part in our cherished sin against a dreadful God, or we're with God, reconciled by the Spirit of God through the sacrifice of Son, Jesus Christ, and therefore are against our sin that we hate. And when we're against our sin that we can hate, that we hate, then we realize that repentance is more concerned with killing sin than modifying your behavior. It's never alone, though. Repentance is never alone. Repentance is always associated or accompanied by faith. If you, if you like the illustration of a coin, repentance and faith are, the same, are different sides of the same coin. Or you flip it over and you have faith. But what does that mean? The other side is faith when it comes to our sanctification and salvation. Repentance is just as present as faith. You see that in Galatians When Paul's talking in Galatians 2, he says that you're justified by faith. So our salvation isn't because of our repentance. It's because of our faith, which leads to repentance because we understand our sin. And later on in Galatians 3, just a few verses later, he he, he asks, why are you so foolish? Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by faith? And so what Paul's trying to bring the the Christians in to this understanding, this by faith that you've gained everything, And so by faith, we achieve or we accept, we gain salvation, not because of what we've done, but because of what the Spirit has done for us to allow us to see that and what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. But faith is one of those words that's so misused or used differently that we have a hard time understanding what it is. When I say faith, everyone thinks of something different. So again, I like Greg Gilbert's definition. It says that faith is a rock-solid, truth-grounded, promise-founded, trust in the risen Jesus to save you from your sin. And we look at that definition, that's everything that then would lead to genuine repentance that leads to hatred of your sin. It's rock-solid, so it's firm. Your faith doesn't waver. Well, how does it not waver? Because it's grounded by the truth. So do you know the truth? Do you saturate yourself with God's word? It's rock solid because it's truth grounded and it's promise founded. It's the truth is grounded in the promise of God that's the foundation of everything of the Christian experience. We, we, right before we started Romans last year, we, we were going through the life of Abraham to look at God's promise, what he, what he was going to do. And now we come all the way forward to present time. We see that, that God's promise was fulfilled in Christ, and so that's the foundation of our faith that's Given to us by the God's word, the truth, that then is a rock-solid foundation to know that Christ, who is risen and living, will save us from our sin. So we can repent and turn because of that. But then that allows us to bring ourselves into the present context of Romans chapter 8. Because only when we understand that do we realize that the Spirit is always a part of salvation. The Spirit's always a part of salvation. That's where we go back to Acts 2.38. Right? Be baptized. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, and receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. And they go to Acts 11 when he's talking about the, the people at Cornelius' face. The evidence of the Spirit on them is what led Peter to know that God had brought and granted repentance to them. It wasn't that they repented, it was the presence of the Spirit in their life. There's an interesting one you can go read on your own was talk about in Acts 19. Acts 19, 1-7, through 7, Paul encounters people that are called disciples, yet they've never heard of the Spirit. And there's some, there's some talk in there like, what, what's happening? It was probably they were Apollos' um, disciples that he had been teaching, but all he knew was John the Baptist. And so they say that we've, we've, we've been baptized with John's baptism, and Paul says, no, it's in Christ And they were baptized, and he laid hands on them, and then what happened? They received the Spirit of God. That was their salvation. It was evident because of God's Spirit on them. And that's what Paul's getting at in Romans 8, 9, 10, and 11. He's saying, here's the effect of the Spirit on those who are saved. These are characteristics, or these are effects. These are ways to have assurance and knowing that you're a child of God if this is happening in your life. And so if you've repented and you've turned because of the Spirit, you still need to understand these because that's how you submit again continually, willfully, obediently, daily to the Spirit's leading. And if you've never repented and submitted your lives, then none of this makes sense because the Spirit first hasn't acted upon your heart. And so both keys are the same repentance and faith for initial conversion, identity in Christ, and then a continuation of that throughout life until ultimately we're glorified. And so you have to ask yourself do you question your salvation? And if we're honest, most people do at some point because I hear that over and over again. Like, how do I know? Right? We just want to know, right? You're like, how do I know so I can be okay? Like, you quit worrying about it. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to be consumed by this, so how do I know that I'm saved? 9, 10, 11 of Romans chapter 8 gives you that understanding. But what you also have to know is that you're, if you're actually considering that, there's, there's a good indication that you are saved, Because people that are in their sin, they don't recognize it as sin because that's just their existence. You see that in culture. They don't call sin, sin, because it's not sin, because they're living outside of God. And so, there's three real quick things that I want to look at that are the effects that the Spirit has on the believer's life that gives us assurance that we are children of God. And the first, you see, in verse 9. Verse 9, if we go back to it, it says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Remember, he's, so he's, he's already given assurance, He's already reassuring these Romans, I know I've said all this, I just said that if you're in the flesh, you cannot please God. He says that you, however, are not in the flesh, because he's writing to believers. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And so what we understand is that, is the Spirit controls us. After I I wrote that, I was typing the slides up this morning, I'm like, controls, I kind of might give you the wrong picture. Leads, persuades, guides. Maybe a better, better way of looking at it. We're not like these little robots controlled by the Spirit, yet the Spirit gives, has sway over us, if you will. And you see that first because the Spirit dwells in you. When you look at that idea of Spirit dwelling, and you think of, of moving into a house, like he's, the Spirit's come into your life, into you, and that's His home. He resides and He dwells in you. He's not just visiting for a while. like He's come in and just made it home. right? It's his place. He dwells in you, and then you're in the Spirit. That in the Spirit is where I get this idea that you're controlled by the Spirit. You're led by the Spirit. If you're in the Spirit, then the Spirit enacts his power within your life, sanctifying you, guiding you, leading you to become more and more holy throughout your life as a Christian. To be in the Spirit is to be controlled Directed, guided by the Spirit. So then you have to ask yourself, do you willingly, continually, faithfully submit your life to the Spirit's leading? Because if you have experienced the Spirit in your life, you know that at times, you know you shouldn't do something. And you have a choice, right? Oh, do I do this or do I not? And you have this little internal conversation, Do you willfully, obediently, faithfully submit to the Spirit's direction in your life? Because the Spirit will lead you as a child of God. But then you can take it into even to a more practical understanding. Well, how do you know if you're actually doing that? It changes everything, right? Everything about your life changes if you're willfully, obediently, faithfully, daily. Consistently yielding your life to the Spirit's power. Everything changes. Your behavior changes. Right? Your actions are different. Not because you're trying to be a better person, but because there's something about you. You act different. Right? For most people, if we're talking, guys, this is where our tempers dissipate. We act differently. We're not offended all the time. We don't rant all the time. That doesn't mean that we are always good at that. It doesn't mean that we always accomplish that, but you start seeing behaviors change, not because you're changing, because the Spirit's at work in your life. If it's not your behavior, also your desires, it's your heart and your mind, they continue to change. And so what you desire is altered. To me, I think of this as Entertainment. What you desire to be entertained by changes. And what you could normally watch, you can't stomach anymore. Why? Nothing changed of it, but your desires change. You real Because if a child of God can't be at home in sin. You can't be okay with that. And so you see your desires change. Again, that doesn't mean that you're constantly going to win that war. But it means that you're constantly fighting against that, repenting and submitting again. Your desires change. Maybe that means that, that success or status isn't the ultimate thing for you anymore. That you're still a good employee. You do the best that you can, but but somehow the status you gain from that just doesn't seem the same. Because your desires have changed. That your thoughts go along with your desires. That's your mental attitude to the world. It right, changes. And this gets this gets me all the time, especially when I'm driving. Or if I'm honest, on the front porch when dismissal's going, that's, my thoughts are not always good because people are people, right? And we're trying to get all these kids out, and everyone's acting like they don't have as much time as everybody else, and it's just frustrating, right? And then people complain, and it just makes it worse for everyone else. My thoughts have to be captive I have to be submissive to the Spirit guiding me to realize that, no, everyone else is just a sinful and selfish as I am. Your pursuits. When you find yourself in Christ, your pursuit of your life changes. All of a sudden you begin to place other people's desires and wants over yours. Or you see people in need and somehow you want to help them and you don't even know why. It's because you realize that the Spirit's at work in your life. So do you seek to help others above all else do you pursue as your desires changing because when you see that happening when you see that change and if you're not in community with other believers it's really hard for you to see this because most of the time it's people that tell you that this is changing and a lot of times it's non-christian friends that tell you that cuz man why are you different you're not fun to be around anymore right you used to be cool and now you're just boring right Sometimes you just got to be okay with being boring, right? The Spirit leads people who are a child of God, and it gives us assurance. But also, the Spirit shows us and reminds us that we belong to Christ. Look at verse 10. It says, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. So if Christ is in you, so the Spirit then, we understand that the Spirit then seals us. So at first, this is one of those switches. Like all of a sudden, he was talking about being in the Spirit, now he's talking about Christ in you. It's like, why did he change? But what you have to understand is that here, the Spirit in you and Christ in you, Paul's speaking of the same presence and the same essence of God being in your life. To say that, that Christ is in you or the Spirit is in you is to say the same thing. So the essence of God in your life. And so we don't have to get tripped up on that, but we have to understand that the Spirit is our seal of salvation or our assurance of salvation because it testifies, the Spirit testifies that we are in Christ, that we're united with Him through His death and resurrection, that we're clothed in His righteousness. That's, you can look at that in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. It says the seal, the Spirit is the seal or the guarantee of what's to come. So the presence of the Spirit in your life is the guarantee or the hope that is to come. You belong to Christ. What an amazing realization. But then we have the second part of this verse, and it's a question that I always get asked, right? That, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. What is he talking about there? One, we have to ask a question, and it, it comes up, I remember when I was first understood salvation then why do we have to die right if god why can't he just stop it then like why do we have to have a miserable life after we're with christ right wouldn't it be better just to be with him on one level yeah right let's just start eternity now right that would be much better than the frustrations and all that but one aspect of that is that god chose to use us to present his gospel and so then how would other people hear the gospel if that when someone accepted Christ? they just were done there'd be no one left to tell the gospel so it wouldn't have ever made it two thousand years forward to us but we have to understand is that that god has chosen to use us but also that we still have the effects of sin that's what he's talking about here he's saying that that although the body is dead this mortal body is dead because the effects of sin are still present death is still there because that's the effect of sin We didn't take the effect of sin away. He took the price of sin, the penalty of sin away. And so death is the final foe that's defeated in the life of a Christian. That's why Paul can say, "Deaths, where where is your victory? Because it's still present. It's still an effect of sin, yet it doesn't hold sway over us. Why? Because we're righteousness. Because we're righteous in Christ. So when you look at the last part of that, when you see the body is dead because of sin, that's the reality, it's the effect of sin, but what? The spirit, but what? The spirit is life because of righteousness. Because of Christ's righteousness. Because when we're united with Christ, we're clothed with his righteousness. And so when we look at that, yes, death is ever present, the effect of sin. But we're righteous because of Christ. And that gives us the assurance that although death will happen, it's not final. It's not final because of Christ. Because we're united with him. And then that ultimately leads us to the last thing we see in this is that he gives life to your death. Right? Look at verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Right. So Paul presents the problem of death, but you're still righteous in Christ. And because you're righteous in Christ, then Paul shows how the spirit solves the problem of death. It's no longer final. Because the same power that raised Christ from the dead will raise you. What an amazing realization! That that that's not final. That's what he said in Romans six, right? That if we die with Christ, we should also live with Him. This is what he's talking about. That yes, we're 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 dead in our sin, but we have life because of the Spirit. Because we're righteousness of Christ has been given to us. And that all happens, you can get into a a Trinitarian aspect right here because it says, if him who raised, the power of who raised Christ Jesus, well, who raised Christ? If you go throughout Scripture, the Father raises Christ, Jesus says he raises himself, and the Spirit raises him. God's power at work in your life will raise you just as Christ was raised. See, all aspects of the Trinitarian God that we have that work in our lives through his power. And so what you need to understand is that when the Holy Spirit dwells within you, he secures you. That we're secure because the Spirit is in our life. That you don't have to worry about your salvation. You can have assurance because you can see the effects of the Spirit in your life. But if you don't see that, then you are outside of Christ and there is no comfort and assurance because you're still in your sand represented by Adam. So what do you do? You hear the gospel, that you were dead in your trespasses and sin, yet God sent his son for you. While you were in that sin, you didn't fix yourself and then become better, and so God could accept you. You were dead, yet God sent his son for you to die the death that you deserved, so on the cross you died too, and then raised him from the dead so that you might live also through his power to bring glory to him. So if you haven't experienced that in your life, repent and believe. Confess, begin to acknowledge and understand that we should hate our sin. And then trust and have faith that's grounded by the truth, that's founded on the promise of God that he will save you and that Christ accomplished that. But if you have accepted Christ, if you have submitted your life, there's also a lesson here that you need to repent and turn as well. Martin Luther said the the life of a believer is repentance and faith. Repentance and faith, repentance of faith. We constantly repent. We constantly have a new awareness of the hatred of our sin. And as we get older and mature, our sin changes, but it's still present. And so how do you do that? You press into Christ. You press into him. You daily seek him. You daily seek him by looking at his word, knowing his word. That's why we talk about so the kids are going to have their celebration for their scripture memory. You should take the word and implant it into your heart. Memorize it. Go to it so that you have it accessible. If you don't know the word of God, then the spirit can't use the word of God to remind you of his promises because you don't know them. That's why when you press into Christ, then all of a sudden when life goes crazy and you're daily seeking him, you're reminded of his faithfulness. You daily seek by reading his word. You daily abide by resting in his faithfulness. Resting in his faithfulness. That's Psalm 7711, right? Right? Remember the deeds of the Lord. So if you've submitted your life, if Christ look back at your life and see the presence of God's providence in your life. Because you can see it. You can be aware of it. Remember what He's done in your life. Remember that He's faithful and abide in that faithfulness. Because it's not found anywhere else. Because people will let you down, yet Christ remains faithful continually. So you daily seek, you daily abide, and you daily submit. You realize that you're not in control. And that freaks people out, to not be in control. I think the biggest frustration that I have in my life is when people want to control stuff, and then it freaks me out because I'm trying to control stuff too. Right? Two people can't be in control, or chaos ensues. Which is our culture. Right? So submit to his will, not ours. And that's why Jesus taught us to pray Your will be done. Seek after him, know his word, fellowship with him, pray. Abide in him by remembering his faithfulness in your life. Submit to him. And allow him to lead you and guide you. And when you're able to do all those things. You'll realize that you have the assurance. That you've always wanted. That's just not found in you. That you've always wanted security. Yet it's found in Christ. And that he is very real in your life. And that he will allow you to live the life that he's called you. Because he's the power behind that. And so if you've questioned salvation, if you've questioned where you stand, do you experience the Spirit in your life? And if you do, then you've you've already got the assurance. Trust in that. Submit to Him. And allow yourselves to walk confidently knowing that your identity is not wrapped up in your success or failure, but in Christ Jesus alone. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you that it's not up to us. God, we thank you that, that you lead us by your spirit that indwells in our hearts. God, that you give us the ability to repent. God, that your faith, that faith is given to us by you so that we might believe. God, I just pray that we would submit to your leading. God, I thank you for our identity. That's found in your son Christ alone. Now that your spirit testifies that we belong and are united to your son Jesus Christ. I just thank you that, that when we didn't deserve it, you sent your son. And it's through him that we have life when we deserve death. That your spirit is within us, leading us guiding us, testifying to your faithfulness. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.